Hey there, Lions! Did you know that you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content by joining our paid support group, the Lions of Liberty Pride? For as little as $5 a month, you can help us grow this program to new heights. Learn more by heading over to lionsofliberty.com support. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, thank you for joining me once again for another edition of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday is the show where I focus each and every week on exposing injustice in the broken criminal justice system. This show is one of three weekly shows here at Lions of Liberty, so be sure to subscribe on iTunes and make sure you don't miss a single episode. My guest today on episode number 65 of Felony Friday is Amy Pova. You'll be able to find the show notes page for this episode with links and notes to everything that we're going to talk about today at lionsofliberty.com slash ff65. Amy Pova is the founder of the Can Do Foundation. The Can Do Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit foundation that advocates clemency for all nonviolent drug offenders. When Amy was 28 years old, she received a 24 year sentence, partly due to the fact that she refused to cooperate with federal officials who were attempting to infiltrate her then husband's ecstasy distribution ring. After Amy was in prison, she never stopped fighting for freedom. She attracted the attention of several media outlets and started a massive letter-writing campaign, which led to members of House and Senate to write letters of support for Amy's clemency. Finally, justice prevailed, and President Clinton granted Amy clemency in July of 2000. Amy, thank you so much for coming on Felony Friday. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. Well, it's, it's really great to have you here, and we've had on some, some guests in the past, in the recent past year, who have been granted clemency as well. Um, Israel Torres was on the show recently, and he was granted uh, clemency for a nonviolent drug crime uh, by Barack Obama. And one of your colleagues at the Can Do Foundation, Malik King, actually uh, contacted me, reached out to me, and told me about you and told me about the Can Do Foundation, and immediately upon reading your story, I, I wanted to have you on, and I wanted to have you on, first of all, to share your story, but also to talk about, I think, the powerful stuff that you guys are doing with the Can Do Foundation. So I do want to spend some time talking about that, about your foundation. But before we do that, I was hoping to start out by um, you sharing uh, what you've been through, your story, and your experience with the criminal justice system. So uh, maybe maybe a good place to start out is just at at the beginning. How did you first come to get arrested and convicted uh, for this conspiracy crime that you were sentenced to serve 24 years? Well, uh, you know, conspiracy is sort of a catch-all that ensnares <clears throat> a lot of people. So I can eat up 30 minutes really easy talking just about, you know, my case. So I'm going to try to condense it the best I can and yet still have people uh, try to grasp um, why we need more exposure and attention on the conspiracy law. And it's one of the, um, I think, most destructive laws that the Department of Justice um, abuses. Um, So 
when uh, I was married to a gentleman named um, Charles Pofall, it's ironically close to my current name of Pova, so it's a little confusing. But, um, you know, I separated from him, and he uh, suffered from alcoholism, and he was a very manipulative person. He was a very successful person. He was a Stanford Law School graduate, and um, I even worked for one of his uh, businesses, uh, Commonwealth Credit Corp. We did second mortgage lending institution. And, um, but he just was not uh, a healthy individual to be in a relationship with. So I had moved to Los Angeles, uh, mostly because if I tried to break up with him and he was far more sophisticated than I was and uh, was very manipulative with the tactics that sometimes go on in a relationship of begging somebody to stay and I'll change and everything. So just to give people an understanding of the context, I had lived in Los Angeles for a year, uh, but we had decided to remain on friendly terms. Uh, he even would come out to Los Angeles. He was pursuing uh, reconciliation, the relationship, which I wasn't interested in, but I wanted to, to be on friendly terms and we were not divorced. So when he was arrested in Germany, uh, it really was kind of shocking. And um, I was not clear why. And there's plenty of letters to prove that and faxes that he had his attorney send to me over here asking me to retain an attorney for him and to come over to Germany. Long story short, I maybe uh, the older version of me would understand um, that you should be cautious in situations like this, but um, I uh, flew to Germany. I did retain an attorney. He had uh, funds that um, I was able to access and um, so what happened is that he asked me to collect some money for his bail. And I did. Um, I really had no qualms about it and never dreamed that we had laws structured in this country that could hold one individual responsible for all the illegal actions that another person commits if you even engage in what is called one overt act. One overt act is if you advance the conspiracy one step, especially back in 1988, which is when this happened, um, you're responsible for everything that everybody else in the conspiracy has done, even if you weren't aware of it. So, so just uh, just by uh, and I just want to make sure I understand what you mean when you say collect collect bail. Was that going to pe- people that he was in contact with that had the money to collect it to to route it in a certain yeah. way? Well, or? at first he was sending um, some faxes through his attorney in Germany. Um, that was directing me to some lock boxes that he had. And I'm no, you know, I don't want to portray myself as a little Pollyanna. Um, I had tried ecstasy. Um, I think that it has many beneficial properties. I've enjoyed ecstasy. I don't do it now. I don't even know how to get it actually. But um, back when I met him, he was very interested in the therapeutic um, uh, effects of ecstasy. And I think there are many. And so I wasn't, you know, somebody, it wasn't like I heard that my husband had committed a murder or robbed a bank. Mm -hmm. And I knew that he could get ecstasy when we were uh, 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 together. I just always thought it came from a, he said he could get it from a chemist. And so, yes, the bail, I went around and um, 
tried to find these lock boxes. It wasn't at a bank. And I knew, I mean, uh, at little by little, you know, I could glean that, um, wow, this was a pretty big deal. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just, uh, maybe I, maybe I have a little bit of outlaw blood in me because I wasn't, uh, somebody who was overly concerned about running around and trying to collect some money for him that he thought he would get bail in Germany, which he never, never did. Right. And, but I did meet with one person who was a, um, I, I guess a distributor of his who had money and he asked me to meet with him. The guy uh, also was in the oil and gas business. He had a business card and literally was a foreman on an oil rigs operation. But uh, the day that I met with that guy was a day that I realized that I'm not going to do this again because it was just, it just felt uh, too nefarious. I, I met him at a hotel and I, I felt like, my God, you know, what am I really doing here? And he had a bag full of cash. It was all mixed up in small denominations. And um, I felt like at any minute, maybe we were going to get surrounded by somebody. I knew I was doing something wrong when I met with him. And it also just felt kind of creepy, to be honest. So I signed that I had received that money because he wanted to be able to prove that he had given it to me. And, um, so, um, clearly I engaged in some wrongdoing when I ran around trying to collect money for him, um, after he had been arrested. So that sucked me into the conspiracy statute and really nothing happened until, um, let's see if I remember, I think it was September, October of 89. And, um, I pulled into my home there in Los Angeles and my house was um, already had been, it was in the middle of being raided and um, some, uh, I'd call them cops, but they were wearing plain, back then they were just task force often would wear plain clothes, unlike the SWAT raids that you get now. And I didn't know they were, I didn't know it was law enforcement. They had cowboy hats and they had guns pointed at me and they were screaming and uh, wow. fairly quick, you know, fairly quickly, they extricated me from the car and flanked me and took me through my home, which was at the mercy of about 10, 10 people who were trashing it, just like you see in the movies where they tear everything up and everything is thrown in the floor. And I'd like to say that I think the, the law enforcement uh, uh, that um, engages in any kind of um, drug enforcement is so unprofessional in that it's the absolute opposite of what happens when there's a murder or some other crime where they seal off and they're very careful about um, looking for evidence. And it just seems like it's a license for the DEA to act like a bunch of thugs yeah. um, because they engage in stuff that's so unnecessary. They didn't destroy my toilet but i've seen them where they've just taken sledgehammers and they did knock the, the the door was on the floor and all the contents of my refrigerator was on the floor and they were pulling out the drawers and laughing who laughs uh when they're investigating a crime and silverware was you know, they they wanted that uh shock element and it's like they were so, taking taking joy in destroying your property yeah, it's ghoulish. I mean, it's really, you know, you really do feel, I felt, and, you know, no disrespect, but I really did feel like evil was in my house, and and I still feel that way. I mean, I, I 
liken it to eras in the past where this kind of energy surfaces, it just wears a different disguise. It's McCarthyism, the witch hunts, um, you know, you, you can go on and on where people have been put in a position where they're put in a chair or they're put in a position and they're told you will either cooperate with us or else you're going to suffer. And that's we got what we have to break it down to. We have to break it down to what this is really about. Because it's it, to me, it's not about drugs or stopping uh, the drug flow. Because we well, fully well know that, um, and we don't want to go off on and digress, but um, the, I don't think the government is interested in, in stopping um, the flow of drugs, even though they may kid themselves into to believing it at times. But it's, it's a, a money-driven um, effort. And so I was told then that I either had to cooperate with them. Um, they said that you, they knew I had visited um, my husband and they said that, uh, you know, I, everyone uh, t uh, seems like tries to uh, blame um, the long sentences that we all um, are serving now on mandatory minimums. But I never heard the term mandatory minimum until I got to prison and I didn't get a mandatory minimum and they didn't threaten me with the mandatory minimum. I was told that you will either cooperate with us or we're going to indict you for conspiracy. And I didn't even know what, what that meant. And uh, to make a very long story short, um, a friend of mine had pulled in behind me and she was questioned and asked if, um, before she left, she was brave enough to come in and ask me, you know, Amy, you know, I'm leaving, you know, can I help you? And I said, just please call my attorney. And I rattled off his name and you know, back then, I, I, we didn't have the smartphones, so I guess she looked it up. But he came up there within 30 or 40 minutes. And I figured I had retained an attorney on a very minimum retainer, thinking that because of what had happened, that somebody might knock on my door to ask me questions. I never dreamed that, um, that I, I just never dreamed that I would have my home completely, um, in, almost destroyed. Um, and be put in a situation where I was told that basically, um, you know, that I should become a government informant. And my attorney talked to the prosecutor. My prosecutor was there that day. I didn't even know that. But he identified himself once the attorney arrived. And they had a conversation. My attorney said, we can leave, which we left my house at the mercy of them. They could take anything they want. And it is true that they steal things. Um, and they don't itemize everything and you're basically leaving your house at the mercy of people who can just you know do whatever they want but again my attorney is the one who sat me down after he talked to the prosecutor and he said boy you know you're you're looking at a world of hurt he said you um they think you're a valuable asset um and sandy was over in in germany he had not cooperated yet but still you know they wanted information on him and they had investigated enough that they wanted somebody over here they thought could infiltrate his organization. And I just sat there with my mouth hanging open and I was just like, well, <laughs> uh, I'm not interested in, you know, and I was like, we have rights in this country. Little did I know that during the 80s and then later in the 90s, uh, no, we actually don't have any rights. So there's really nothing between us and somebody who wants to threaten us with 20 to life, for God's sakes. A first offender who's never harmed anyone, they can basically say, okay, well, you either work with us or else. And that's that's where we are today. So at, at what point in this did you 
did it really strike you that, oh, my God, you know, you might actually be spending some time in prison? Uh, you know, it, 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 frankly, it just, it would not sink in. I even had somebody once, you know, who, a friend who, who asked me, you know, you know, when, uh, it was almost two years before they actually indicted me and they, they would follow me, they would harass me. They went and talked to the, my employers, uh, so that if they made my employer's lives miserable cause they went and looked into their taxes and, used threatening tactics. They have a way of isolating you so that they kind of drive a steer right into the, you know, the, the uh, slaughterhouse. Um, they're very good at it. They've done it for a long time. And, you know, I don't know. I, I remember telling my friend, I was like, no, I just, uh, you know, I felt like I was a good person. And I just didn't think that good people went to prison. Now I know that prisons are filled with not only good people, but some of the best people I've ever met in my entire life. So I think, uh, I probably, um, after I couldn't work anymore and after they came and seized the car, um, not because it was purchased with drug proceeds, but because they said that, uh, confidential informant number four, which you don't even know who that is, had had a conversation with my ex in the, my car about ecstasy. They didn't even say it was sold or a transaction happened. It was that loose. I don't know if it's that loose now, but it was that loose back then as to how they could seize property. And so, so um, was, is that an aspect of uh, I guess civil civil yes. asset forfeiture where they could correct? Okay. Yeah, they could take your card just because somebody had a con. They, they, there's two different ways: illicit fund if it was purchased with illicit funds, or if um, how did they frame that? It's, it's if any kind of what they consider to be a transaction occurs. So uh, they think that a conversation is, is a transaction. And um, so then um, it got to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't use my credit cards. Um, they seized money straight out of my account, which was legitimate earnings. You have to fight them on this stuff. And um, then I was using my parents' credit card and I had a rental and then the rental agency called me and wanted me to return the car for some bogus reason. They just have a way of penetrating you so that you literally become, you, you, you cannot function as, you know, as a human being who's just trying to work and pay your bills. So um, you know, it finally got to the point where, yeah, it was sinking in that I was just like, Jesus, you know, and, but I, I don't know if... I'm not really big into astrology, but I do know I'm an Aries, and um, Aries are stubborn. We have horns, and we, you know, I, I was probably the opposite. If, if they had any kind of psychology on how to possibly um, coerce or coax somebody into cooperating, using those tactics with me had a, a, the absolute opposite effect. The more that they made my life miserable, the more I was determined that I, I would never crawl in bed and work with the feds after seeing what they what they did to me and knowing that they were pressuring other people who were my friends to say things about me. Um, nearly everybody uh, refused. Uh, I had a roommate that didn't pay rent. I let her live with me and I had kicked her out. So they try to find people that have, you know, that they have an ax to grind with you. And, um, so I don't know, I, I don't want to spend all our time on this, but, 
Um, I then, when I was indicted and they took me to Waco, Texas and they, you know, they denied me bail and I, uh, yeah, it sinks in. And then I became kind of more like a, a crusader almost. I, I, I told my mom, um, they were asking me, why won't you just cooperate? Cause they couldn't understand. Nobody understands cooperation doesn't mean you sit down and you say, okay, I'm going, I'm going to, um, explain everything that I did, or I'm going to fess up. That's not what cooperation means in this country. Cooperation means you have to give substantial assistance, and you do not get any benefit of cooperating unless you give substantial assistance. If you look up substantial assistance, it means that you have to aid them in the conviction of others. And even if you aid them in the conviction of others, and they don't get the fruits of the labor, your labor, they can say, okay, we're not going to give you uh, any time off, even though you hoard yourself for us and, uh, and poten- became a potentially puppet. you could have been putting your life in danger in those situations. And some people have absolutely, you know, we've got those horror stories too. So, um, when I was in Waco, I remember, t- I just remember distinctly this one time, my mother always wanted me to be a journalist. And so I remember telling my mom on the phone, they were so distraught. Um, and I said, mom, you know, just, why don't you just pretend like I'm a journalist and I just have to see where this story takes me. And whatever happens, I feel like this is fate. I have to understand what's going on here. And maybe I have to live this story and possibly do what I'm doing right now, which is report on it. (laughs) And uh, you can't, you can't become an expert in something you don't know anything about. And I feel like I got a degree in uh, criminal justice the hard way and the drug war. Um, So it's an ugly, ugly business. And I think it's going to one day be referred to as the dark ages of a modern society. Um, We look back at the era of alcohol prohibition and we wonder what the hell were those people thinking? Well, I think that we will be viewed with even more um, skepticism as to to whether or not, you know, there was true intelligence coming from the people who kept this policy in place. 100% agree with you. I think even as soon as 10 to 20 years from now, maybe sooner than that, sooner than that, people are going to look back on this time, these past past several decades, and just look at all the people who've been locked in cages for doing nothing more than buying or uh, possessing a substance, consuming a substance, and not harming anyone. There's there's no victims in, in a lot of these situations. Mm-hmm. And they've been locked in a cage. And a lot of these people, unfortunately, their their lives have been ruined. And uh, people associated with them, friends and family as well, have been severely negatively impacted. So, yeah, I, I 100% agree that this is definitely a, a black eye in the history of this country. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors for today's show. We'll be right back with more Felony Friday. Hey, guys, this is Roger Paxton. And if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. 
Hey everyone, the Johnny Rocket Launchpad is Liberty. Each week we strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, experts, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check us out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com. You can hear me, Kurt Nelson, and the beautiful Heather Nixon talk about the ideas of liberty. Rock and roll. And we're back here with Amy Pova of the Can Do Foundation. And Amy, one thing I wanted to ask you about before we start to talk about your your foundation, um, when I was reading your story, one thing that really struck me and one thing I thought was really, really fascinating was the amount of media attention that you were able to generate while you were in prison and really use that media attention to build up some momentum um, for your clemency. At least at least from my perspective reading it, that's how it seemed. You can fill me in if that's accurate or not. But how did you go about generating that media attention? Well, I owe a lot of credit to um, a gentleman by the name of David France. Um, because in the 90s, you know, it's a different climate now. And frankly, it's kind of strange to me because I've been able to get some media exposures for quite a few women that are serving time, but we're sort of numb. Our society has kind of become numb and oversaturated. Um, There's just so many ways that media can come at you. But back in the 90s, first of all, there was a climate that there was just zero tolerance for anyone associated with drugs um, who had been arrested for drugs, um, the government and um, other Groups had really done a great job in, I feel, um, kind of manipulating the public to, and that's what we do uh, when we want to go to war. And if you look at history, um, we're always at war in this country. So no sooner did the Cold War end, um, it seemed like, well, we have to declare war on somebody. And uh, I really blame the the Bush-Reagan administration for um, shifting uh, the public's attention to to feel hatred for their fellow citizens, and um, we uh, everyone blames Nixon. But let's face it, there wasn't a drug war going on during uh, Ford and Carter administration, and the nation was engaging in a lot of uh, 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 recreational drug use. It's funny back then it was called recreational drug use. Now you know this, but we went into the zero zero tolerance era. Um, but the media, my mother would call sick, you know, contacted, wrote so many letters, 60 minutes, everyone sh- we could think of. I reached out to Playboy. I think Playboy was the first one that published a letter that I wrote. But David France um, saw a show called um, Snitch that Frontline did. And Frontline was the very first to show the underbelly at the drug war. Um, in uh, the, it was probably around 96 or 7. And actually, um, Frontline had, had asked me to, uh, they had talked to me about being on this, this particular um, show that they were doing called Snitch. And I had my last, well, your last habeas corpus, you know, your final appeal in your 2255. And we're always in a situation in prison where we, we feel like we can't, upset the monster and the monster is the people who have us in prison and make these decisions as to how vigorous they're going to keep you in there and the judge 
And so I knew that if I did that show, we would have to expose what, what happened in Waco, uh, which is a whole nother story, but it's a very corrupt, um, uh, I feel they're, they're, uh, the, the federal court there is corrupt. They were moving cases to Waco that had nothing to do with Waco, including mine, because our case was out of Dallas. But um, anyway, uh, David France saw the front lines snitch. He um, Googled. He had just been hired by Glamour magazine to beef up the magazine with some women's stories, serious, hard-hitting women's stories. And he came across my story on a, on a couple of websites. And that was the turning point for me because he... Um, Nobody would talk about the conspiracy law. Uh, once again, any any media that we were getting, it was just mandatory minimums. But nobody really understood how somebody like me or several of us could get 20 years to life. And if you don't explain the conspiracy law, you'll never understand it because it's not just a mandatory minimum. It's mandatory sentencing. But um, so... Glamour, because um, back then there there wasn't there weren't any stories h hardly at all about those of us, and so I kind of broke that bubble, and he exposed what was happening to the women, and I was kind of the anchor in that story. He used um, some other stories to support that this wasn't just an, an unusual case where somebody had slipped through the cracks. It was happening to a bunch of us, and so. That um, Glamour article was sent to every single Congress member uh, by a friend of mine and uh, every senator. And it was amazing to me <laughs> that um, so many uh, did write letters of support for my clemency. Because by that time, I had my clemency petition in. And um, because I think they were shocked to find out that the kingpin was free. Well, we didn't cover that, but he engineered a deal eventually, um, incriminated everybody, including myself. And he, he, he had to serve time in Germany, but then he came over here to the U S and the same judge who sentenced me to 24 years, gave him three years probation. And, um, so he was free. He had actually even married another woman while we were still legally married. And, um, but the, the, the glamour magazine really is what kickstarted all the media that came came um, out in my case. That, that is truly unbelievable. And um, I can see why you were able to, when you lay out the story that way, the, the guy, the kingpin responsible for this is, is out of prison. And yet his, I guess, ex, ex-wife or at the time is still, still locked away for, for this mm -hmm. conspiracy crime, you know, not even really associated with any of the criminal acts that went on. So it's, well, yeah, and what people, I, I really want to nail this down because our sentences are based on the amount of drugs that was involved in the total sum of the, the uh, conspiracy. So he had manufactured 3.3 million tablets, and my time came from that because I was responsible for all the ecstasy that he manufactured. And what I, th I guess the best way for me to explain a mandatory minimum, because I keep hearing people say that they're triggered based on how much drugs are caught with, and it could not be more untrue, <laughs> is it's really triggered when you don't cooperate. Because the only people who are subject to mandatory sentences are the ones who don't, you know, uh, work a plea bargain or cut a deal. And um, 
sometimes even when you cut a deal, you can get one, but they're really triggered when you, when you go to trial, because all of us who go to trial, we get the, 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 the mandatory sentencing, whereas the other people who cut a deal do not. Right, because they're trying to make an example out of the people that actually test the system and fight fight for their their uh, fight for their freedom and go to trial, and obviously they. Well, want, we used to have a right. Play, but. Yeah, we used to have a right um, that is sort of a protection that our forefathers inserted there that we we had that right, but um, mm-hmm. the DOJ and government, you know, doesn't government always erode um, our rights? That's just what they do, and they find ways around them. So I, I personally find it disgusting that judges uh, can no longer judge. So why do we call them judges? Um, they've, had, uh, they've been cobbled, and they're just supposed to look at a chart. So I think if that's the case and they can't look at mitigating circumstances or use their common sense, which is to judge, we might as well just call them prosecutorial aides because I, I, don't, I think a judge is called a judge for a reason. I agree with you. 100% agree. I do want to move on now and, and talk about the Can Do Foundation, the foundation that you founded. How how quickly after you were able to, that how quickly after you were granted clemency did your idea to to form this foundation come up and how quickly was it was it up and functioning? Good question. Immediately <laughs> because I had already um written and filed my roommate's petition. Her name was Lao Chin Chin. And I am not exaggerating. I read her paperwork. And even they have a way of writing up uh, what is called a pre-sentence report, which is what the judge goes by when he sentences you. They have the the government works with the probation people. And it's a very pro-government document where when you read it, you're, you're literally going, I don't even what who is this person? Because they won't put anything positive in there, uh, anything that you've ever done that's positive, And it reads like, you know, it's a very negative document. And I read uh, my roommate's um, pre-sentence report, and they literally couldn't even find anything negative to say about her. And all she had done was take a message from what she did not realize was an informant who was trying to set up um, her boyfriend see, the problem with this is that there are so many people out there among us who are literally under pressure to set up deals because they're working their way, you know, out of a mandatory sentence or a long sentence. So, so there's all kinds of people that we're interacting with on a daily basis. And he, he told Chen to, will you please tell your boyfriend to meet me in Chicago at a certain time at a certain hotel? That's it. You know, there wasn't any talk about drugs or anything like that. And she passed that message on. And um, now there's some changes in the law. But back when she did that, um, that was all it took for her to be responsible for what happened. Um, So she got 17 and a half years. Her boyfriend was lured into a sting. Um, Ironically, he wasn't selling drugs, they brought the drugs. So we literally had the government bring the drugs. Well, when they're in control of how much drugs they bring, then you're responsible. So, you know, if they want to bump it up to two kilos, even though it was agreed upon that her boyfriend was going to get one kilo, um, you're responsible for all of that. She had only been with him for a short time. She came out of a, a um, abusive relationship where there was horrible physical abuse. She worked 
full time in the garment industry. Um, she was a manager um, in New York. And so she got 17 and a half years just for passing on that message. And it even said in her pre-sentence report, they said, well, it seems kind of harsh <laughs> to, um, you know, for her to be at the, um, they, they tally up the, the points, uh, which will then direct a judge to the chart that he has to use to sentence you. Um, but, he, but whoever wrote her PS, uh, pre-sentence report said, but, well, this is, um, we'll send a message. You know, send a, who's going to read her Prius? She wasn't on the, you know, mainstream news. Nobody heard about this poor woman getting 17 and a half years. But, you know, it was like, well, this is what we have to do because we have to send a message. Um, and so as soon as I got out, I started um, advocating for her. I was a very busy person because I was advocating for a lot of people, a lot of the women that I said, I'm not going to forget you. I want, wanted to try to help as many people get out. And Clinton had six more months. I got out in July. And so whatever, the next January, he would be leaving office. And I've done a freedom of information um, with the uh, office of the pardon attorney. So I have all the paperwork. I finally got it all. And uh, even when you would send something to the White House, it's channeled back to OPA. So I got to see all the letters because I didn't keep copies of them that I had written on behalf of other women. And um, I Chin uh, did get out on Clinton's last day, and that was, uh, a, it's always bittersweet because I was screaming for joy for her, and I actually got to tell her over the phone because the prison hadn't told her yet, and I was notified about it. And, uh, but the other women that I was advocating for, um, several of them, they were, they were not on that final list, and very dear friends like Mary Richardson, I'm going to rattle off several names. Danielle Metz, that I uh, didn't realize she didn't have a clemency petition in. <laughs> I thought she did. Um, but anyway, um, so I did not have uh, Can Do as a nonprofit until 2004, but um, I was very busy trying to get as many people out um, before Clinton left office. And then I really, frankly, never stopped trying to advocate for. Uh, um, Mostly women, only at the uh, when, during Obama's uh, Clemency Project 2014. In the last two years, we started adding men to the website because it was such a historic um, event, and I had so many people and and knowledge of people like Tim Tyler who was serving life for LSD. I had I would actually know women in prison who were co-defendants, you know, of men who had these life sentences for pot and um, for other drugs. And I just felt like we, you know, we have to embrace the men also, even though my little organization was really taxed because we, we don't have, you know, we don't have funding. It's, um, all volunteer based, very passionate people. All people are helping who, um, have a loved one in prison or they were in prison themselves. So, um, I'm very proud of where we've come because we were uniquely positioned when the clemency project kicked off. And so the media finally found us and we got to go to the white house three different times and did four, four or five vigils in front of the white house, um, with posters. And, um, but it's so sad because I, I'm a little disappointed that, um, president Obama didn't, um, I feel finish what he started.
Yeah, it was almost like he started he started too late. I don't know why he waited until the, you know, really at the last several months it was a wave of, of granting clemency, but not sure why he waited so long to do that. If it was, I mean, if it was purely political, he was already reelected for his second term. He could have used you know, more time during his second term to grant clemency, but. Well, I guess they get busy with a lot of things, but I I don't really, I honestly don't think he was paying attention to the issue. I'm sure that um, he's got a lot of people putting things in front of him. However, I feel that it was Russell Simmons' open letter that um, kind of woke President Obama up because it was a very strong uh, open letter criticizing him for not doing more um, to stop the bloodletting, which even during hold during his first term and holders uh, as attorney general, they were still prosecuting. I mean, we have people oh, yeah. under Obama's watch who were getting life for marijuana, who were getting life sentences. Mm-hmm. And Russell Simmons criticized him harshly for it. And then he said, I'll never forget because, you know, it, my eyes popped out when I read it that at the bottom of page one, it said, why don't you create a clemency panel, which is exactly what he did after Russell Simmons, this thing was published. And it was signed by uh, over 200 celebrities, all people who are um, helped get President Obama elected and um, people that I think he respects. And I think it may have even been a little bit embarrassing because it was it was really kind of a rebuke um, that he wasn't doing anything. And it wasn't long after that that he got busy and Holder um, made that speech to the American Bar Association saying that the system was broken. But it didn't happen. You know, if you're going to look at a timeline, I look at timelines to see, okay, what triggers what? And... Um, I could be wrong. I, I got to meet Russell Simmons and I actually walked up to him and I thanked him for that open letter. And he got, you know, I think it, he was sort of tickled by it. And he, you know, we all like to know that somebody recognizes uh, some of the things that we do. And I, I really I have a lot of respect for Russell Simmons. Yeah. And I, I will link to that open letter on the show notes page. so Everyone can read that. And we, we are going to have on a future felony Friday episode, we're going to have, as I said before, Amy's uh, colleague at the Can Do Foundation, Malik King, who does correspondence as well with uh, with federal inmates. So we'll be talking to him later. I do want to, before I let you go, Amy, um, I, I do want to get you to let people know how they can help out the Can the Do Foundation, where they can find more information about it, where they can learn about it, and where they can follow you on social media. Oh, great. Well, yes, it's um, CanDoClemency.com. And um, we're on Twitter, uh, Can Do Clemency, the uh, Facebook. Um, it's it's all under Can Do Clemency. Should be fairly easy to find. I I'm going to rely on Malik um, to be sure to spotlight so many people. Um, we're so happy that a lot of people we were advocating for got out, but we're devastated, absolutely devastated over some of the perfect, perfect candidates um, like Alice Johnson and Michelle West and elderly people, women in their 60s, men in their 60s, 70s. We even have a guy who was serving life for pot who's 84. He's already served over 30 years. Uh, that there's no excuse why um, they didn't get clemency. Uh, well, other, well, I have my theory, but we don't have time for that. Uh, the Department of Justice uh, it 
gets to cherry pick and have final say over which cases travel over to the White House, and that needs to change. <laughs> My parting note is that the Office of the Pardon Attorney needs to come out from the jurisdiction of the Department of Justice because of the conflict of interest. Um, but I, I would love for everyone to please keep this issue alive and um, we can't forget about the, the prisoners who, I, right now, they're really feeling a lot of pain, the ones that were left behind. They feel like a curtain just closed. And so we, it's our job to, to keep their, the spirit alive and to fight for them. We, they've got to have some relief. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on Felony Friday and sharing your story and sharing uh, the work that your organization, the Can Do Foundation, the very important work that you guys are doing. Thank you for having us. It really was a pleasure today having Amy on the show to share her story. And I can't really imagine, I can't put myself in her shoes, what she was going through. It's hard for me to imagine what her situation was like. But I know from talking with her and talking with other people who have been in similar situations, when you find yourself essentially being blackmailed by the federal government, they will bully you to get you to play ball with them. And Amy refused to do that. She refused to wear a wire to infiltrate her estranged husband's criminal ecstasy enterprise at the time. And she paid the price for it, which is really unfortunate. And a lot of people... That would have been the end of it. Um, They would have sulked in prison. They would have been swimming in a pool of self-pity. But that's not what Amy did. And she turned a really terrible thing into an extremely good thing. Um, When she did eventually garner media attention and get enough people in Congress and the Senate to actually start advocating for her clemency. And she was able to get her clemency granted. But I think maybe even more impressive than that when she did get out of prison, she immediately turned around and started advocating for the people that she was serving time in prison with, started advocating for their clemency. She easily could have walked away at that point and washed her hands of the situation, but she recognized that there was work to be done, and she took her own experience and used that experience to help even more people. And I just think that's absolutely incredible. It's awesome. And it was a real honor today to have Amy on the show. I want to thank you all for listening to today's episode of Felony Friday. I hope you really enjoyed it. If you ever have any guest suggestions, if you have some topics that you'd like me to talk about, you can always email those to felonyfriday at lionsofliberty.com. If you'd like to chat with us, if you'd like to chat with other Liberty lovers, please think about joining the Lions of Liberty Forum. You can find that on Facebook. You can just Get there by typing Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top. Click join and we'll get you approved as long as you have a profile picture and you look like you actually love liberty. Don't forget to check out our online store where we have t-shirts and beer koozies. You can find that at lionsofliberty.store. And also check out our patron program. We've been releasing a lot of exclusive content to our patrons, to our Lions Pride. Uh, We've had a conspiracy roundtable. We've had an additional Felony Friday episode. I had a little segment on the end of last week's episode with Lenore Skenazy where she answered answered a question uh, exclusively for members of the Lions Pride. There was an extra Tom Woods segment that Mark Clare ran last week. So there's always going to be things here and there. And at that minimum $5 level of the Lions Pride, 
you can get access to, to all of our exclusive content. So it's really, really a no-brainer, and we look forward to having you on board. Lastly, if you enjoy this show, which I'm sure you do if you're still listening right now, please share it. Please go on your phone right now if you're not driving. Go on your computer, and please share the show. And then if you can do that, please go to iTunes if you haven't and give us a five-star rating and review. And if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe to the show. Doing that, doing those couple things right there will help us more than you can imagine to grow this show and to reach a wider audience, which is the reason why we do this. That's all I have for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.